Hey, Faye, it looks like we've got a great opportunity from our friends at Rosh Review for our chief residents who are studying for their board exams. So Rosh Review is partnering with us to give away some ABOG qualifying exam QBanks, which involves 3,000 questions that can help you guys study either for the qualifying exam or just for your CREOGs. This is a $650 value, so it's an awesome package. And definitely as you're trying to study for those written boards, answering questions is the biggest thing, I think, to try and get prepared. So we think this is an awesome opportunity and we want you to get signed up. So the way to get signed up is to go onto our website at www.creogsovercoffee.com and answer the Rosh Review question of the week for our most recent episode. Once you answer that question at the bottom of the answer explanation page, you'll see another button to sign up for the giveaway. So sign up for the giveaway there and Rosh Review will announce the winners the following Friday. So we hope you take the opportunity to go onto the website, answer the Rosh Review question of the week and see if you win this ABOG qualifying exam QBank package. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. So on today's episode, we are going to be talking about the prevention and management of obstetric lacerations at vaginal delivery, which, you know, I think is a is a nice uh, back-to-basics episode that we have here. So Nick, talk to me about our learning objectives. So first, we'll review the different types of lacerations that can result after vaginal delivery and some of the perineal anatomy with that as well. Um, we'll then discuss a prevention strategy or strategies for higher order lacerations. Um, and then finally, we'll dive in to understand repair and the other management considerations for higher order lacerations. So I think one of the most important things as an obstetrician in anatomy, Faye, that we have to think about is the perineal body anatomy. Yeah. So this is the most common site of injury for obstetric laceration. So it's really important that we as obstetricians know the anatomy here so we know exactly what we're putting back together. So First of all, this is a fibromuscular mass in the middle line of the perineum at the junction between the urogenital triangle and the anal triangle. So if you're looking back at your anatomy textbooks and you're looking at you know, the two triangles, um, that's where it is. It is made up of three specific muscles, which are the bulbospongiosis, the superficial transverse perineal muscle, and the deep transverse perineal muscle. And below this is the anal sphincter complex, which we should also be familiar with, which is consistent of the external anal sphincter, which is under voluntary control and provides the squeeze pressure of the anal canal, as well as the internal anal sphincter, which is involuntary or autonomic control and provides up to 80% of resting pressure of the anal canal and is very important for anal continence. All right, Nick, so now that we've talked a little bit about anatomy, how often do obstetric lacerations occur? You might think that we'd have a better sense of this, um, but there are really varying numbers in the literature. And you'll read stuff what we found predominantly between 53 and 79% of patients sustain some type of laceration during delivery. To review the types of lacerations quickly um, as sort of our basic knowledge here and what we'll be talking about for the rest of the episode, the first degree laceration is injury to the perineal skin only. Then there's a second degree laceration, which involves the perineal muscles, um, those perineal body muscles Faye mentioned earlier, but not involving the anal sphincter complex. 
A third degree laceration now involves the anal sphincter complex, and these are subdivided into 3A, 3B, and 3C, where 3A entails less than 50% of the external anal sphincter being torn, 3B being greater than 50% of the external anal sphincter being torn, and in 3C, meaning you have a full thickness injury of the external anal sphincter, as well as rupture of the internal anal sphincter. Finally, there's fourth degree lacerations, which is now going all the way through the anal sphincter complex and into the anal epithelium. Studies show maybe intuitively that women with fourth degree lacerations are at the highest risk of reporting bowel symptoms um, at six months postpartum, things like flatal and fecal incontinence. Um, and bowel control is 10 times worse in those who sustain fourth degree than those who sustain third degree lacerations. The last kind of laceration that we should consider or talk about are episiotomies. Faye, do you want to talk about the apes? Sure. So an episiotomy is a surgical enlargement of the posterior aspect of the vagina by an incision to the perineum to usually facilitate the second stage of labor. And rates have steadily decreased since about 2006, but uh, 12% of vaginal births still include episiotomies based on some 2012 data, um, which is pretty interesting because I feel like, you know, we, I've delivered quite a few babies by now and I've maybe cut three episiotomies in my life. Yeah. Not very many at all for me either. Yeah. You know, it's a little bit difficult to talk about um, how episiotomies specifically affect pain and continence issues because it's difficult to separate the contribution of having the vaginal birth, the potential operative delivery, uh, episiotomy, and other oasis to pelvic floor function and anatomy. But systematic reviews have shown that routine episiotomy offers no immediate or long-term maternal benefit in perineal laceration severity, pelvic floor dysfunction, or pelvic organ prolapse. Um, In other reviews, though, episiotomies have been associated with an increased risk of postpartum anal incontinence. And in one meta-analysis, there was an increased risk of anal incontinence even if no extension into the anal sphincter complex occurred with an episiotomy. So routine episiotomy does not improve self-reported sexual function outcomes, and it's more likely to be associated with pain with intercourse in the months after pregnancy and slower to resumption of intercourse um, than women whom uh, episiotomy use was restricted. So basically what I think we're trying to say here is that there is a time and a place for episiotomy, certainly if you're trying to save a baby or facilitate that you know, shoulder dystocia um, or do that operative delivery at the very end of that second stage, but we wouldn't recommend that you routinely cut them. Um, So now that we've talked about some of those um, incidences of the different types of lacerations, Nick, what are some of the risk factors for higher order lacerations or, you know, as we are starting to call them, those obstetric anal sphincter injuries or OASIS? Yeah, so there are a number of potential risk factors. Some of these things you probably could consider, but some might surprise you. So operative deliveries are certainly one big one that is thrown out there. We've talked about operative delivery and the risk of third and fourth degree lacerations on the podcast before. But just as a reminder, the odds ratio for a third or fourth degree lacerations with forceps is up to 5.5. And with a vacuum-assisted vaginal delivery up to almost 4, 3.98 is the general consensus. Midline episiotomy, or one that's kind of vertical as opposed to the medial-lateral episiotomy, has an odds ratio of 3.82 for a higher order laceration. And then kind of moving from there, there's a couple of other 
ones to consider. So increased fetal birth weight does correspond to an increased risk of higher order laceration with a mean difference of 200 grams just about in those who sustained lacerations of higher order versus those who did not. Um, so for what that's worth. Midline episiotomy, in addition to forceps, substantially increases the risk of third and fourth degree lacerations. So combining some of these factors may contribute to even higher incidence or risk of those higher order lacerations. And then there are finally a number of things that are less modifiable. Um, again, and these are the things that are reported in the literature. So primiparity, um, labor induction, labor augmentation, epidural use, persistent occiput posterior presentation. Asian ethnicity is also listed, Faye, but again, we've talked a lot about race and ethnicity being a challenging thing on the podcast. And so while it's listed in the practice bulletin, is probably something that needs a little bit more investigation as to why we see that. All right, so we've talked about the scariness and when maybe to anticipate the scariness and there's things that may contribute to the scariness, but we want to prevent the scariness always on labor and delivery. So what strategies are there to help prevent these obstetric anal sphincter injuries? Yeah, so we'll talk about a few things that have been investigated both in the antepartum period and in the intrapartum period. So the first is um, antepartum or intrapartum perineal massage. And the thought is that by doing this massage, it will decrease perineal muscle resistance and then reduce the likelihood of lacerations. So in studies that compared antenatal perineal massage to no massage, single-digit massage from 34 weeks at gestation onwards was associated with a modest reduction in perineal trauma uh, that required suture repair, so a risk reduction of 0.9 and decreased episiotomy rates. Perineal massage during the second stage of labor may reduce third and fourth degree lacerations when compared with the uh, hands-off methods, but that was not associated with significant changes in the rate of birth with an intact perineum. So maybe decreases your rate of third and fourth degree lacerations, but not lacerations overall. Perineal support, you know, I feel like we are always taught as like an intern to support the perineum when that head's crowning. The data is kind of, you know, middle of the road. There was a meta-analysis of more than 6,600 women, and this did not show a protective effect for OASS. However, there were three non-randomized studies that showed a significant reduction, uh, but the techniques of support, so how was the perineum supported um, for how long, for example, that was not well described in these studies. The other thing I feel like, um, you know, we've been taught a lot about uh, as residents is that warm compress. So there was a meta-analysis with 1,525 women where they were randomized to either warm compress or no warm compress in the second stage of labor. And this actually did reduce the rates of third and fourth degree lacerations, um, but again, did not increase the rate of women having intact perineum, so not having any laceration at all, but still very easy and, you know, worth use of warm compresses. And then the last things uh, include a birthing position. So upright or lateral birth position compared with supine or lithotomy was associated with fewer episiotomies and operative deliveries. In this study, there appeared to be higher rates of second degree lacerations overall, but it's worth to note that this was overall low quality data. Uh, a meta-analysis of five randomized trials showed no clear benefit. And then a very recent randomized trial showed that lateral birth positions with delayed pushing was compared with lithotomy positions with immediate push 
pushing, and this lateral position with delayed pushing was more likely to have patients deliver with an intact perineum. So take that for what it's worth. And then the very last thing is looking at delayed pushing, meaning um, waiting after the patient has reached completely dilated and uh, allowing for some descent. And this showed no difference in the rate of uh, prevention for perineal lacerations. So things to consider is that antepartum or intrapartum perineal massage and warm compresses. So um, Nick, now that we've talked about prevention, what happens if the lacerations occur? How do we manage them? Yeah, so we'll go through these lacerations and management based off of the anatomy and the degree of laceration. So let's start with kind of our more superficial things, those small periclitoral, periurethral, or labial lacerations. If you're an intern by now in February, you probably have seen several of these lacerations. They're really common. And you may have even been exposed to the fact that if they're superficial and they're not bleeding, there's not necessarily a need to repair them. Um, They often will heal very well on their own without the need for suture. However, if there is bleeding or the anatomy is distorted in some way, um, you definitely should repair these even small lacerations. If you don't feel comfortable with the anatomy or comfortable with the way the uh, laceration appears, consult experts, get someone else in the room to be able to take a look because these can be in very sensitive places. Again, periurethral, periclitoral, um, you have to take care in sort of those kind of repairs. First and second degree lacerations are the next category that we'll talk about. It might surprise you to know that there's really insufficient evidence existing to recommend a surgical versus non-surgical repair of first or second degree lacerations. Essentially, a lot of the data doesn't include long-term outcomes. Now for us, kind of when you're seeing these lacerations, you may be kind of thinking about like, oh, is there bleeding going on? Is there other things? And many times there is. And so it makes sense to do a repair then um, to kind of help control that. Overall, you should use your clinical judgment regarding repair. There are a couple of tips or things that should be pointed out that seem to be best practices with repairs. Continuous suturing is preferred over interrupted suture. This is associated with less pain at up to 10 days postpartum with less analgesia use and a lower risk overall of having suture material that needs to be removed postpartum. You should use an absorbable synthetic suture, something like polyglactin, also known as Vicryl or Polysorb, as the best material for the repair. Um, Though in some places you may still see folks use things like chromic gut. All right, Faye, why don't we move over to those scary ones now, those obstetric anal sphincter injuries and how to repair that. Yeah, so overt oasis is reported in about 4% of women in the U.S., Um, However, occult oasis may be later identified by endoanal ultrasonography, and this can occur in 27% of women after their first vaginal delivery. So that's like a quarter of women, right, which is quite surprising and quite high. Whenever I'm taking my intern uh, or, you know, my second year through the deliveries, the first thing I tell them to do is after that delivery is you really have to look. If you suspect something, if that second degree looks just a little bit deeper than you would expect, do your patients the due diligence of doing a digital rectal exam, especially if they're under anesthesia. Examine the perineal body and the vaginal mucosa because if you can start to see fibers of the ex- internal and external anal sphincter, that's when you really have to worry about um, an oasis. It also has been shown that SIM has been helpful in helping providers identify and repair these third and fourth degree lacerations. In terms of how to repair a laceration for oasis, we are certainly not going to um, be able to 
take you completely through this in a way that is going to help you repair these lacerations. You really should practice um, on those models. Uh, but essentially, you want to start from the deepest layer and go upwards towards the vagina and start with your anal mucosa. Um, the expert opinion varies on the technique and suture material here, but you can consider subcuticular running repair that uses a transvaginal approach and interrupted sutures with knots tied in the anal lumen, um, and both of these have been described. Um, we would suggest that you use 4-0 or 3-0 polygalactin or chromic at this point. However, there's no comparative trials that have been done. We then move on to the internal and external anal sphincter, and you should identify the area of the internal and external anal sphincter because they can retract. We usually will place an alice uh, on either side of the external anal sphincter to really bring them together, and then you can cross the alices and do a good digital rectal exam to see if you're bringing the right muscles together. And remember to suture the fascial sheath of the muscle as well as the muscle to bring that together. The methods um, that you can do are end-to-end -end and overlap repair, but remember that the overlap repair means meaning you're actually taking both ends of the muscle and putting them over each other. This requires full thickness disruption and at least one to one and a half centimeters of torn muscle on either end. So this really shouldn't be used for a 3A or a partial thickness 3B sphincter injury. Expert opinion suggests that you use 3O or 2O polyglactin suture. So again, that Vicryl or polysorb. A meta-analysis of six randomized control studies showed no difference between the two techniques of end-to-end -end and overlap repair at 12 months of perineal pain, dyspareunia, or flatal incontinence, but there were lower incidences of fecal urgency and lower anal incontinence scores in the women with overlap repair. However, there was no significant difference in quality of life or anal incontinence symptoms at 36 months after the repair. So for us, uh, you know, just because of the way that we were taught, we do tend to do the end-to-end -end because of visualization, and we do tend to use the PISA technique, uh, which is going for four bites of that posterior, inferior, superior, and anterior aspect of the external anal sphincter. All right, Nick, so what else should we be thinking about when we have these oasis injuries to help manage them? Yeah, the first thing that we should do while we're still in the delivery room is ask for antibiotics. Now, this is one thing that is a newer practice, I would say. Probably folks started doing it routinely while we were in residency, Faye, um, but also is something that can get missed very easily, especially if you know you have a shoulder dystocia with a hemorrhage into this third or fourth degree laceration that you're then trying to repair. Um, no, if it's not part of your checklist of things that you do when you have a third or fourth degree laceration, and it's not ingrained in anybody, this is a step that's very easily missed. So wound complications overall, including, you know, the outcomes of infection or complete laceration breakdown, get decreased when antibiotics are administered. So a single dose of antibiotics, with most studies looking at a single dose of a second-gen cephalosporin, something like cefazolin or cefatetin, is reasonable. Kind of other things that we should consider in this sort of vein is that within the first six weeks, even with good repair, good technique, almost 25% of women can experience wound breakdown and 20% experience an infection. Um, and those, of course, who have complications are going to have more pain and more difficulty than those with normal healing. One other thing to be always on the lookout for is the possibility of fistula. In the United States, rectovaginal fistulas that occur, 10% of them in the U.S. are associated with obstetric trauma. Um, and if you're practicing abroad or in lower resource settings, that number can even be much higher. Um, so definitely, you know, getting a good repair done the first time and trying to prevent complications is really the important thing. So 
If you're not having a SIM program at your place, get that set up. If you don't have a checklist for what do we do to care for patients in the immediate aftermath of a higher order laceration, get that set up. Faye, what else should be going on our checklist in terms of how to care for these patients? Yeah, so immediately after your third or fourth degree laceration, you want to think about what are some of the things to make sure that the patient is comfortable and also to help them move through the next few weeks. The first is pain control, and you also want to avoid constipation and evaluate for urinary retention. In one study, use of oral laxatives was associated with significantly less pain and earlier bowel movement um, compared to a what was called more constipating regimen. So while it is okay to prescribe these patients opiates because they may need it for pain, um, you want to make sure that you're putting them on a good laxative regimen for them to be able to go to the bathroom. You should monitor them frequently for wound healing. Um, the practice bulletin doesn't necessarily say exactly what co is considered um, frequent monitoring, but we should consider seeing them you know, more frequently than that six-week postpartum checkup to at least look at their bottom and make sure that things are healing well. And finally, pelvic floor exercise and biofeedback physiotherapy has been suggested. And so certainly if that is something that is available to you and your patients, that would be great to suggest for them as well. So let's say that we have this patient who has a third or fourth degree laceration. How would you counsel them for their next pregnancy, Nick? Overall, just like basically anything else in obstetrics, if you've had it once, you're at risk to have it again. Um, in Oasis is no difference. The absolute risk overall, though, is pretty low, only around 3%. Given the degree of difficulty and complications that can result from these particular injuries, given the fact that that risk is still at least 3%, um, ACOG does state that these patients can appropriately be offered an elective primary cesarean rather than vaginal delivery with future pregnancy. There is no difference, actually, when there's vaginal delivery or elective cesarean with respect to moving forward in life with fecal urgency, anal incontinence, or bowel-related quality of life. Though it stands to reason that if someone does experience a second, third, or fourth degree laceration with a second delivery, that that person may be more adversely impacted in the future. So shared decision-making is really the important cornerstone of a lot of things of obstetrics. Um, and this is one of those things, too, where you have to talk with your patients about you know, the potential risk of a repeat injury and the things that come along with that versus undergoing the risks of cesarean delivery. Um, all right, Faye, I think that does it for talking about lacerations today. Why don't we try and summarize? Sure. So we first started off the episode by talking about some anatomy. So we discussed the bulbospongiosis, superficial and deep transverse perineal muscles that make up the perineal body. And we also discussed the external and internal anal sphincter that is right below it. We then talked about the types of lacerations. Remember, first degree is injury to the perineal skin only. Second degree involves the muscles of the perineum, but not the anal sphincter. Third degrees get broken up into A, B, and C, where A is less than 50% of the external anal sphincter torn, B is greater than 50% of that external anal sphincter torn, and C requires both the internal and external anal sphincter to be torn. Fourth degree lacerations then get into the anal epithelium, um, and these are certainly the most significant lacerations that we deal with. Um, we also mentioned episiotomy today. Again, there's a time and a place, but they are not recommended routinely. 
In terms of risk factors for higher order lacerations, these include things like operative deliveries, midline episiotomies, increased fetal birth weight, um, and other less modifiable things like primiparity, labor induction, labor augmentation, epidural use, and persistent OP. In terms of prevention of uh, higher order lacerations, we discussed antepartum and intrapartum perineal massage, which can show a decrease in third and fourth degree lacerations, as well as warm compress during the second stage of labor. Birthing positions potentially could decrease the risk of uh, having perineal lacerations, but delayed pushing has not been shown t- uh, to make a difference. In terms of management of obstetric lacerations, again, small periclitoral, periurethral, or labial lacerations can be left unrepaired if they're superficial and there's no bleeding, however, should be repaired if they are bleeding or distort the anatomy. And again, consult experts if you don't feel comfortable with the particular area the laceration is affecting. First and second degree perineal lacerations, surprisingly, there's insufficient evidence regarding their repair. Um, However, a lot of times using clinical judgments to help with bleeding control or pain control, repair is indicated. Continuous suture is preferred over interrupted suture because of less pain and analgesia requirements and using absorbable synthetic suture like polyglactin aka vicryl or polysorb is appropriate. Oasis injuries again are more uncommon only about four percent of patients in the U.S. and really you want to look if you are concerned. Don't be afraid to do the digital rectal exam, examine the perineal body, um, and determine whether a laceration has occurred because it can occur in up to 27% of women after their first delivery. Quickly, in terms of the repair, again, we recommend doing this in a simulation type of environment, but if you have a fourth degree going through the anal mucosa, expert opinion varies, but we suggest using 4-0 or 3-0 polyglactin or chromic suture in a subcuticular running fashion. Finally, with repairing your internal and external anal sphincter as part of the third degree repair, you need to identify the areas and we'll often use an Alice clamp on either side to help bring the muscles of the external anal sphincter together and do a rectal exam to make sure that we've got the right areas. We've talked about the end-to-end versus the overlapping repair based on the exposure and the visualization that you have. Again, use 3-0 or 2-0 polyglactin suture. The idea is to try and get as much suture in there as you possibly can to help reinforce that, but the PISA technique, posterior, inferior, superior, anterior, getting at least four stitches in there, is probably the most common approach. We do recommend antibiotics when there is oasis, uh, especially because um, wound complications are decreased when intrapartum antibiotics are administered. Complications still can occur, though, from oasis injuries, and in the first six weeks, 25% of women will experience wound breakdown and 20% will experience wound infection. Those with complications are, of course, more likely to have pain than women who have normal healing and it also is important to consider the possibility of forming a rectovaginal fistula. Care for these types of uh, perineal lacerations include things like pain control, avoiding constipation, evaluation for urinary retention, as well as frequent monitoring for wound healing, and also offering pelvic floor exercise and biofeedback physiotherapy. With future pregnancy, the risk is overall low at 3%, but there is an increased risk overall, and thus it's appropriate to offer patients elective primary cesarean section. So that does it for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee.
So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your favorite podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreagsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreagsOverCoffee, or if you love the show and want to give us some support, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash CreagsOverCoffee. Send us some love. We'll send you some swag. We have show notes for this show and every other show, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week, which, by the way, if you engage with, you can also win one copy of the Rosh Review OBGYN Kriag and Board Review Question Bank um, in the next few weeks. You can find that on our website. Finally, if you have a correction for this episode or any of our previous episodes or just want to say hi or give us a suggestion, email us, kriagsovercoffee at gmail.com. All right, Nick. So we're done with our boards and uh, Kriogs are over for this year. But, you know, what do we do if we want to keep making sure that we're up to date on the most current OBGYN practices? Yeah, as we get this podcast together every week, we have to always think about our friends over at the OBG Project who have these amazing summaries that are updated every day of the week, encompassing the latest research, encompassing newest practices, um, and also posting things like Grand Rounds where they get into the controversies of modern obstetric and gynecologic practice. And for all you residents out there, they also have a great core curriculum for you to study from. Um, we know that you probably want to break after Creogs, but definitely something to, worth checking out. And for all you chief residents out there, you can get one year subscription to OBG First absolutely free. Head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar. Chiefs, find out how you can get OBG First absolutely free. And residents, get signed up for the core curriculum.